Hello and welcome to the Unnamed Automotive Podcast. My name is Sammy Hajj Assad, and with me, as always, is my good friend and fellow automotive journalist, Benjamin Hunting. Say hi to the people, Ben. Greetings, human listeners. Greetings to everyone. If this is the first time you're listening to our podcast, thank you for trying something new. I will reiterate, Ben and I are a pair of automotive journalists, um, and you can find our work all over the internet. And we're also pretty good friends, I would say. In fact, so good friends, I'm going to let Ben take control of the podcast momentarily to tell people where they can find his work. Ben, can you do that? It's funny how you refer to me speaking as somehow (laughs) taking control of the podcast momentarily. I guess I'm breaking the... The uh, elaborate system of rules that um, keeps us both in check during this brief period of recording. Well, you remember the contract that we signed. I have to ensure that to show my good friendship, I won't interrupt you very often. And I think I only have about three interrupts per episode. I can't use them. Any more than three exhibits um, unfriendly like behavior. So I, I recommended that you hold out for four interrupts and you were like, no, I got a family to feed. I can't exactly. I can't hold out any longer. Um Sammy is correct. I do I do write about cars and you can find that information and uh that information. You can find that writing at uh, Motor Trend, at Car and Driver, at Inside Hook, at Driving Line, and at Haggerty. You can find that information about Ben writing at these following publications. That was good. I like that. Um, and you can find my work on the internet as well. Uh, I write for driving.ca, autotrader.ca, Nouveau Magazine, and TechSpot. I think that covers all of them. And if I missed one of my other publications, I'm sorry. I'll make up for it next week, I'm sure. And, and Sammy, a big part of the reason why we do this writing for those publications and provide that information is because we drive a whole bunch of cars all the time. Is that mm-hmm. is that correct to say? And uh, this is the year-end show, so we're going to have a little bit of a different format than normal. We're still going to talk about a, a more of an in-depth review of a car that we've driven recently, but we're also going to talk about the cars that we've liked the most over the past year. So I'm going to kick things off by getting the recent car out of the way. Uh, sadly, this car doesn't make that second list <laughs> that I was talking about. Wow, spoiler alert. But not for any real reason, not because it's bad <laughs> in any, any way. I love that. It didn't make the ri- the list, but we really don't know why. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's it didn't, it, you know, the, the uh, criteria are completely arbitrary and this is about exactly. to be revealed. No, I, I just spent a week with the 2022 Nissan Pathfinder, Sammy, which is completely new for this year. And by completely new, that means it's still a unibody crossover that's actually using the engine it had the year before. But uh, the Nissan strategy at work. Yeah, but the good news is, I mean good news, bad news, it's not it's not here nor there. They've taken kind of a different approach to the Pathfinder. Now, if if anyone's been paying attention to the Pathfinder over the years, you're We don't we don't blame you, right? <laughs> Well, it's gone through a lot of transmogrifications, let's just say. When it first started out, like late 80s, it was a body-on-frame off-road type of SUV. It was like a forerunner or a trooper or anything like that. You could get a yeah. two-door, four-door. And then in the mid-90s, it kind of became something else, almost. Well, they got rid of the two-door, I think. Well, they got rid of the two-door, but they also went to a unibody platform. Yeah. So it was the, the R50 generation of the Pathfinder, which I think personally is the sweet spot uh, it used kind of a platform that married body on frame and unibody by having these long, sturd- I guess you could call them 
reinforcements underneath the chassis so that the vehicle could still be used off-road. It still had a low-range four-wheel drive system, but it was a lot better to drive on the street than it used to be. And, and that, it also underpinned in a related Infinity model, right? Uh, yeah, there was the QX4, which I think was the first SUV from Infinity. And mm. uh, speaking of QX4, that also eventually the this generation of Pathfinder got the VQ engine series, uh, the VQ 3.5, VQ 35. Is that the one? Um, anyway, three and a half liter V6. It was uh, a much better engine in terms of power and efficiency than before. And then in the mid 2000s, Nissan blew that all up again. <laughs> and went, yeah. went back to body on frame, this time not for off-road reasons, but because they kind of built a suburban competitor, or m- maybe more accurately, an explorer competitor of that year. It was a three-row SUV. It had a V8 eventually that you could get. It was based on the same platform as the pickup, the Nissan Frontier and the Titan, which was, I think, a, a platform that could be embiggened or enthralled, however they wanted in it to be. Embiggened or enthralled. Um, is this the generation of Pathfinder that eventually grew into the Armada? So yes, they, like and, named it a Pathfinder Armada. Sorry. Y- yes and no. I, I, you know what? I can double check that right now because I had that information in front of me. I actually just did a piece on the uh, Pathfinder from that generation, and I, I want to say that the Armada is the one that was based on the Titan full size pickup, and right. the Frontier sized frame was the one that went under the Pathfinder. Yeah, even though even though it was a little bit longer, I think than the Frontier. You can still feel that, like, truck relation there, which wasn't quite there beforehand. Like, they're doing this kind of, like, flip-flopping here, right? Well, what, what had happened was uh, Nissan didn't have a truck-based SUV. The The Pathfinder had, ne- Pathfinder had never really been based on a pickup in the way that the American SUVs were. And the American SUVs were printing money in the 2000s because they were able – I mean, the, the Explorer wasn't a truck-based SUV, really. It wasn't no. based on the F-150. But – the the you know suburban Yukon all that stuff was doing quite well at the time. And so, even Toyota does play, employs the strategy yeah, too, right? Yeah, the Sequoia, which was not super successful, but you know it was hanging around. So yeah. they tried that, and it didn't work super well. It worked okay for a while. The the early versions of the Pathfinder sold well, and then it kind of did a nosedive. So in 2013, I believe it was, they blew things up again. Mm-hmm. This is the this is the third complete shift for the Pathfinder in its in its life, and they went to a front wheel drive crossover, which would never been done before, mm-hmm. on a unibody platform, and they kind of really gave up on the idea of it being a tow platform, even though it could still tow like six thousand pounds, uh, or like it wasn't a hardcore tow platform. But they gave it a CVT, they made it soft, they made it a commuter, a three row commuter SUV, and and that's kind yeah. of where the Pathfinder's been for like a decade. If I re- if I recall when that came out, um, it was actually quite popular, and it also spawned a infinity an infinity version called the JX at the time, the JX thirty five. Yeah, which became that, the QX sixty. Yes, and that became that was also extremely popular for Infinity. So I think this like um, this segment where they're battling against um, maybe less loyal customer uh, with, with batting batter. Sorry, they're battling for mindshare with less loyal customers. People would maybe get uh, who are looking between uh, a Highlander, uh, an Odyssey, a, a pilot. Not an Odyssey, sorry, a pilot. What else is there out there? Why am I blanking on every other possible? Or like a, a uh, CX nine? You know, it's it's like it's it's that kind of crowd, and it did do yeah. very well for them. You're right. The sales shot way up when they redesigned it. So it's it's not surprising that for 2022 they stuck in that same general sandbox. 
But they tried well, design wise. It doesn't really look like it, right? Well, that's that's what I was about to get to. So right. they, that was one of my interrupts. Sorry. Yeah. So write that on the interrupt board and slap yeah. yourself in the face with the interrupt strap. There we go. So they kept the front wheel drive platform. They kept the engine, which was a, a decent engine. It's a three and a half liter V six again. Uh, and they decided though that the Pathfinder needed kind of an attitude adjustment because the the previous generation was was boring to look at. It, it sold well, but it had no personality. It was impossible to pick out of a lineup of other SUVs. And I think Nissan was upset by that and wanted to somehow tap into the Pathfinder's heritage in a way that made sense for the buyers that had found a home with it. And what they've done is tried to ruggedize the vehicle. And Sammy, we were on the Nissan website earlier and if you go to the website and look up the pathfinder nissanusa.com the the first thing you see is return to rugged and there's even a little return to rugged section where if you go to that website and you're presented with these five different scenes where they show the new pathfinder and then if you click a little button this is flashback it shows you the old pathfinder in the same scene and i buy old i mean like 1987 style pathfinder yep. so for them, ruggedization seems to mean making it look butch, giving it more of a, an aggressive and muscular styling on the outside. But nothing else about it has really changed. They didn't give it a uh, low-range four-wheel drive. It doesn't have skid plates. It doesn't have a special off-road addition. It doesn't have increased ride height. It, it, it in effect, is just kind of a cosplay of what a rugged SUV would look like. Sammy, how do you feel about that? I mean, in general, that is good enough for, for a lot of customers, I think. Um, just cosplaying off-roading or ruggedness is cool. But they did make one very important change for this generation. They got rid of the CVT. Oh, yeah. Well, that's which... not, there, are some, there are definitely changes. I'm not saying there aren't changes. I'm just saying that they've kind of emphasized the idea that it's a rugged, oh. off-road capable SUV. Even in the product marketing I'm looking at right now, it goes, this iconic off-roader is inspired by the spirit of the 1987 Pathfinder. There is no, nothing... No, I can't possibly think about off-roading on this. And if I look at... You you press that button for the uh, 1987 one, look at how much more ground clearance <laughs> this thing has. And the bigger tires and, like, every way it is, it is way more rugged. It is meant to do um, real off-roading. And I don't know if the Pathfinder... The Pathfinder could probably handle itself on some sand, on some snow. I don't think it'll be that, you know, out of sorts there. But it's not like rock crawling or... No, and I want to focus on this a little bit more before I talk about the vehicle itself. Okay. It's just, they gave the vehicle, they, they gave the new Pathfinder some drive modes, like every SUV has these days that is kind of making a play for the off-road crowd. And they, you know, they're set up around the same typical stuff you see, like mud and ruts and sand and grass and all that stuff. So when I had the vehicle, the it, it, we got a lot of cold weather and we got some snow dumps. So I was able to drive it around in some very slippery conditions. I wasn't able to off-road it. Not that I would, but I did get to drive it in inclement weather. The four-wheel drive system or all-wheel drive system, I should say, it works quite well. I didn't really have any issues with traction. It didn't uh, feel unsafe or unstable at any point. It did a good job. And my alley ice is over pretty easily. I didn't have any issues driving there or on the highway in some deep snow. I drove it through a freezing rainstorm. Again, no problem. So it felt very safe. It felt like a good family SUV option. But a lot of that, a lot of that driving impression can also be um, related to the tires. Too, well, yeah, right? I mean, That's you have to have over... the right tires for every occasion. But that would be true of off-roading too. You wouldn't mm -hmm. want to go off-roading on street tires, right? That's true. Yep. So I, 
I think there's a big disconnect between the marketing of the Pathfinder and what the Pathfinder actually is. And I'll just tie that section up by saying, don't buy this expecting you can go off-road. Don't buy this thinking it has the same off-road capabilities as, say, a Suburban or a Tahoe with a Z71 package. This is not something you're going to want to beat up on a trail. It's not even going to be capable of doing that. You're probably going to damage it if you try to do severe off-roading. So let's... I'm putting that to bed right now. What the vehicle does do well, Sammy, in addition to handling terrible weather, I think it looks a lot better than the previous version. I think this is a huge win for Nissan. Absolutely. I think this these like squared off proportions look way more elegant and and like timeless than that kind of egg-shaped version that was there before, right? Yeah, I think they did a decent job because it's hard to make an aggressive looking SUV without kind of making a caricature of what aggression is supposed to look like. So it doesn't have an enormous grill. Like the grill is normally sized, which is odd on a, on a modern vehicle. And right. I liked how they kind of took the curves of the other. If you look at the previous generation Pathfinder, it kind of had a weird swelling curve at the back. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, and the new one does away with that. And instead, you get these chiseled wheel wells, or sorry, the the uh, fenders just over the wheel wells are quite chiseled and square. And yep. it's a nice profile, and it's it's got a nice three quarter view. Uh, inside the truck, I had the platinum trim level, which is the highest, and it does look quite nice. They did a good job with details. There's nice leather. Um, there's a good balance between the infotainment system using touch commands and using actual hard buttons. And in general, the interior is very, very roomy. The third seat, third row seat, excuse me, still something you're going to want to put kids in, not necessarily adults, but the second row is quite nice. I think there's an eight passenger option, but mine had the two captain's chairs and Mm -hmm. the pass through was, I mean, there's, there's a ton of room there. So keep talking to me about um, the exterior design, too, because most of the models that I see uh, uh, out there are like a two-tone. They have like a blacked-out roof. Did you did you have a, a colored um, Pathfinder? Yeah, it, it was uh, red, and it had it had the blacked-out roof as well. And I think that's kind of like their, their, you know, their flying buttress kind of – not flying buttress, but their, their hidden pillars kind of thing. Yeah, they, it seems like Nissan is really pushing this kind of two, two-tone thing. You'll see it on like the kicks and the – Sentra, and um, I think even the Rogue you can probably get with a two-tone kind of roof. So this, you're right, this seems to be kind of like a um, a character thing that Nissan wants to put into all of its cars. Yeah, I mean, I, I like it because it's nice to see a vehicle like the Pathfinder come back into the Nissan family and kind of look like other vehicles that are out there instead of just being left. Like, you mentioned the Sequoia earlier. Yeah. It, that's a vehicle that's been left on the vine for an indefinite amount of time. <laughs> and it really is out of step with the rest of the Toyota lineup, kind of like the Tundra was, although the Tundra got a little bit more care before its recent redesign. But mm-hmm. uh, I have to say... In terms of styling, inside and out, this is a well-done crossover. I think it's nicer in some ways than what you would find from a Highlander. Just more interesting inside. Um, yeah. The the cabin is the cabin is a completely different. It's a it's a whole shift. I think. Yeah. This is not what Nissan used to be doing with their cabins. Right? No, this like, is the closest you could get to in the past was what Nissan used to do with the Maxima back when the Maxima yeah. was like a stealth infinity and it had a super nice interior, but no one was buying it. So no one had any idea. And what was the name of the other one? The Murano. The Murano is the was, still a thing. The Murano is, is still a thing. I think they sell the Murano. Really? I think so. I think wow. it's less and less of a thing as time goes yeah. by. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, the cabin of this thing is actually really attractive. 
Um, did yours have like uh, the the dark brown leather or any sort of you know special accents inside? Yeah, it it what I, impressed me about the use of leather was uh, the touch surfaces weren't just soft, but you know I I'm obsessive about detail. I've talked about it time and again on the mm-hmm. on the episode because on the episodes in the past because so many vehicles that we're starting to see. Um, with the reliance on screen technology, where you're using capacitive touch and touch screens and infotainment systems to do most of what's in the vehicle, when you do that, you lose the – once you turn the vehicle off, it's just this swath of black plastic. Right. Like that's all you have on the center screen. That's all you have on the console or on the gauge cluster. And, and then to, in, the, in the worst light, you just end up seeing fingerprints. Yeah. Piano, piano black, basically, yeah. you know, everywhere. And that's unattractive. And as good as it might look with the screens on, I think it's also important to consider the overall design of the vehicle. And a vehicle like the Pathfinder, it doesn't leave you with that impression. The, the screen is modestly sized. It's useful. But at the same time, there are details in the design that make you think someone actually took their time when putting this dashboard together. Mm-hmm. Instead of just saying, we're going to cram the latest technology we have here to try and wow you. Okay, I can see that. Um, I do have some reservations about the feeling of the plastic um, on the steering wheel and around the gear selector. They, it just feels a little like um, like cheap, like just hollow. Maybe a little bit, but keep in mind that it's you know this is a vehicle that's under forty thousand dollars. Oh yeah, I mean the pricing seems to be pretty aggra- uh, like aggressive. I yeah, would so say. it it starts at about thirty three. And then the platinum one I had is under fifty. It's like forty nine thousand or forty eight thousand six hundred, something like that. So you're barely touching luxury at that point. And I think for a cabin that is at that price point, you wouldn't necessarily be disappointed. I, I think that this. I guess what I'm trying to say is, I think the Pathfinder style wise is on the same level as the Hyundai um, Palisade. And the yeah. Kia Telluride. I think that- I was going to ask because those vehicles they set a benchmark, and I think they caught a lot of the competition off guard. But this Pathfinder seems like it it can possibly keep up with those. Yeah, and I, 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 I that's definitely my opinion as well. And I think that is um, that is something that's interesting to see that we're having a you know mainstream Japanese automaker that is having to take lessons from the Koreans at this point because they really pulled out so far ahead. But at the same time, I'm happy that that's happening because I'm tired of a boring black and gray and obsidian interior that we're seeing in so many large crossovers or crossovers of any size, really. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I want to uh, go back a little bit. You mentioned the drivetrain uh, and how it handled um, in relation to being kind of like an off-road. or, or it, It's not really an off-roader. Yeah. But how was that? Um, motor and especially that change back to a an automatic a standard not a standard a normal automatic transmission yeah so nissan put in a nine speed transmission in place of the cvt and it's matched to uh, the three and a half liter v6 that i mentioned so you're looking at 284 horsepower and 259 pound feet of torque i found performance was good um the transmission was largely transparent what i had an issue with was the automatic start stop system i it it was not smooth whatsoever, and it would occasionally catch me by surprise. And the weirdest part of it was it kicked up the revs really high. Like, if I had, if I took a little bit of brake pressure off, or it was actually very cold the week I had, so sometimes it would turn the engine on to cycle the heater. Mm-hmm. And the revs would climb to, like, 1,400 RPM and then drop down to, like, 700 RPM. And when, when that happens, I felt it kick my foot back on the brake. 
Interesting. And that's unusual. And I think that I was partly spoiled by the Bronco the week before. As much <laughs> as I wasn't a fan of that vehicle, the start-stop system in it was excellent. It was extremely fast and almost imperceptible. So Interesting. Um, that's something I really noticed about the Pathfinder in terms of drivetrain. Uh, the, the chassis also... As you know, they're talking about how this is a rugged vehicle. It is actually one of the softer crossovers I've driven in a long time. Yeah. Um, just going around corners, <laughs> mm-hmm. the vehicle liked to pitch from one side to the other. It wasn't, it, it, there's nothing unstable about it or anything like that, but you do feel the size of the vehicle. You do feel that it's set up to be comfortable and to kind of cosset you rather than any kind of performance illusions, which I'm fine with because I don't want to drive it quickly. Right, right. Um, you mentioned the price, you mentioned the powertrain, you mentioned the interior. Anything else you really want to talk about? What about the safety gear? Like, usually Nissan has been pushing their safety gear. Did you get a chance to use any of that or? I used a little bit of the um, the stop and go cruise control. I didn't use much else. It does have the full speed of of Nissan. What do they call it? The three sixty safety, safety pilot three sixty or something like oh, that. Oh yes, I yeah, can't remember. Co pilot three sixty. Anyway, pro pilot assist. Pro pilot assist. There we go. There's so many variations on pilot assist, and for some reason, the number of degrees in a circle in, in so many of these vehicles it gets confusing. It's it's fine. Um, Nobody's doing two seventy or one eighty degree safety system. Don't, no, don't, it's usually three sixty. <laughs> but a lot of these systems, I also have to mention that during the ice storm I was driving oh, in, yeah. the systems were not usable, and I got a lot of warnings saying, you know, collision warning not available or adaptive cruise not available because the sensors at the front of the vehicle get covered very quickly. Have I mentioned this to you um, about LED headlights in ice? Uh, they, they're not hot enough to melt um, snow and ice. Yeah, and my heart, really. But um, I've I noticed this about with the uh, with the escape that we had uh, that we had talked about last week, and, and I forgot to mention it. But it too has like these all LED headlights, and uh, I got caught in that that in, in an ice storm or or what do you call it? Freezing rain and the. Uh, the headlights were not enjoying that bit at all. Like visibility was really rough. Yeah, I think you know that's something that OEMs are going to have to consider moving forward, and whether that looks like a either a heating element installed in the plastic, which I think would, I, I'm not sure how feasible that is, or yeah. if it's just a headlight washer that's heated. Uh, it's something that they're going to have to consider. And I know that stuff like headlight washers and heating elements are often avoided because they raise insurance costs because front end collisions are some of the most common collisions. Even if they're at low speeds, you can end up taking out a headlight that can suddenly be quite expensive. Absolutely. So, I mean, it's interesting to, to hear these like safety features and stuff like that. And like classic cars had this, not classic, but older cars had, um, this built-in lighting system that was always better, right? <laughs> I, I had, so in my E34 BMW 5 Series, it was a 91 model, and it had headlight washers, which was a big deal at the time. And With the wipers or the sp- just the spray? No, just the spray. Okay. But the reason I bring this up is because as a result of having this, it had a huge, huge, huge tank for the um, washer fluid because it was oh, the yeah. same tank that was used for the windshield, and it had two mm-hmm. different pumps. And um, it, I think it was every second or every third time you pulled on the washer for the windshield, you would get headlights washed as well. But the problem I have with mine is there were so many hoses to, to get to the headlight washers that it leaked constantly. At oh. the time I had it, it was very high mileage and it was, uh, it was, it was a little old. I think it was like I was driving it in the mid-2000s and 
I ended up sealing off the highlight washers just because it wasn't worth it's the tank was so big trying to work with your hands down inside the fender where all of these hoses were was almost impossible and it wasn't worth it so i just plugged it off um and i had to i had to drive like a peasant basically and not be able to wash my headlights <laughs> so um anything else we want to add about this pathfinder would you recommend i mean would you recommend it to somebody yes we've, we've been so eager to recommend the palisade and the telluride in this class and then when it comes to hybrids i think the um the Highlander hybrid, Highlander hybrid is pretty good. I yeah. I would definitely recommend it. I think alongside the Palisade and the Telluride, it is worth driving. I think it is equal to those vehicles in almost every category, except perhaps driving experience. I think it's softer yep. than either of the Koreans. Uh, I would recommend it over something like a Pilot or a Highlander, simply because I feel like the interior is better done and the styling is is more of a standout and i i think too you know it's weird thinking about vehicles like the subaru ascent which mm-hmm. is good but i don't think it has the personality of the pathfinder but i'm not sure that's a problem because it's very well rounded so i would i would definitely place this in the upper tier of the hierarchy of three row crossovers okay very cool um let's talk about well ben it's the end of the year it's it the is end of 2021 it, it that year like went by pretty quickly in my in my eyes. Oh no, it felt like forever for me. And um, I was wondering if there's some cars you want to talk about about specifically, you know, your favorite, you know, the favorite cars you drove this year. I I want to hear yours first. You want to hear a couple of my? Okay, we'll we'll alternate. How about that? Is that fair? Uh, well, we'll see how it goes. Okay, I want to start off with a with something a little bit more mainstream, and I want to start with probably my favorite like overall um, or everyday kind of car. And I think that the new Honda Civic really knocked it out of the park. This 2022 model um, really ups the ante in terms of what the Civic um, represents. It's way more um, up class. It's very large. It's very spacious. And that might be the biggest pro and con to the vehicle. It just doesn't feel like a compact anymore. But as a result, it just feels like a class above. And I really did recommend it. I think I talked about it back in episode. Um, I've got the number. Trust me on this. Are you trusting me? I'm two twenty-three. I, I believe <laughs> <laughs> two twenty-three is the one I'm going to say is that episode that I discussed it in. So um, I I just was really impressed. I I just didn't expect it to be such a major um, jump, another jump from what was already a very good vehicle. So all right, well, um, I'm gonna after every one of these vehicles that you talk about, I'm gonna ask you if that's your car of the year, regardless. Uh, so I have to ask you: Is that your car of the year, Sammy? Mm, I'll have to think about it. Let's keep going. You, wow, that's, that's not a great answer, but okay, yeah, I know. we'll continue. Uh, I, a, a vehicle I really, really love this year, the Lexus LC500 convertible. Oh, but you have this on your list every year. I, like. Well, I'd never driven the convertible before. It's, uh, oh, new, for, it's new for 2021. So yeah. I was expecting it to be good because the coupe is amazing, and I was not disappointed. The best part of the car is with the top down, you can hear that naturally aspirated V8 so much better. It is perhaps the most beautiful convertible on the market today at any price. And I'm just happy that Lexus makes this vehicle. It's not at all the car you think the company would be making. And it's rare. I think that the LC500 is the last of its breed. I don't think we're really going to see big GT cars with big V8s much longer. I think everything's just going to go turbo like it has been. Uh, Every single competitor to the LC500 is a turbo. Uh, whether it's a V6 or a V8, so that's it's it's a fantastic car, and, and I'm happy it exists. I'm 
curious how long it'll take, or if Lexus still has like a chance to be recognized for that vehicle by the by the shoppers, right? Like, um, I think when people say I want a large coupe, they probably don't make the first stop at Lexus. They probably check out BMW or even some even Porsche before. Um, oh, for Lexus, sure. I, I'm right? sure they sell a handful of these cars. So, but it, but like critically speaking. Um, and even democratically speaking, but by based on how many views it gets, like on the street, this is a wicked car. Yeah, right. It's, it, it is the one to buy. It, it, so, what is stopping people from getting it? I don't think anyone buys big coupes. I think it's the tiniest market, and yeah. I think probably a lot of that's repeat business. So, Lexus is just kind of on the outside looking in. I just checked, and last year they sold twelve hundred. But this year they sold 2,600, which I'm assuming Whoa. I'm assuming that's combined convertible and coupe sales. So that probably helped them out a lot. Right. Um, I want to continue our conversation with our bests. I want to talk about. Oof, I forgot. Oh, Genesis GV70. I mentioned this last uh, week or the, a week prior. Um, I think that this is a this might be the car of the year. If not car of the year, it's the crossover of the year. This is a luxury. Compact luxury um, crossover that just it just brings it to the Germans, and the Germans have dominated this segment for so long. X3 and Mercedes GLE, and even the Audi Q5 um, have just been the easy picks in this class. And now the Genesis GV70, I think, has just leapfrogged into that conversation, if not to the top of that. Um, either model, the 2.5 liter or the 3.5. Really does the trick. The only weird thing is it's got some uh, questionable technology. It's got a weird fingerprint reader that doesn't, I don't think does enough. It just doesn't do enough. I mean, I, we've got fingerprint readers in our phones that do more than this thing. Is I totally forgot. Like, to, I'm going to interrupt you now because I totally forgot about the fingerprint reader when I reviewed the vehicle because yeah. it's not something I would ever use. Like, <laughs> personally, I don't want a fingerprint reader in my own car. But as a car reviewer, I'm not about to give a company my biometric information. Yes. And then had it back at the end of the week. Like, that's just not happening. So, But, I mean, I, I can imagine, like, if you – I would love to have a fingerprint reader in my own personal car. Wait, what, so for? When, what for? What for? Give me, so give me when, one good reason. Yeah, so that when me or my wife kind of switch seats or whatever it is, we can, we can do that without having to press the button. Remember which button is who. Oh, uh, so you're saying two. that instead of pushing a button, you're going to push another button, that, except that other button is a fingerprint reader. Yeah, I think that's cooler. And it might make the design <laughs> a little bit nicer because you don't have to worry about that, that gaudy one and two on the, on the door handle. No, there. but you have to take your gloves off. Oh, yeah, true. Um, that's, why the actually Subaru, have that's why the Subaru facial recognition is so much better. Oh, my right? goodness. Are you saying this all ties back to the Forrester robot, doesn't it? <laughs> you just want to be able to take the Forrester robot with you wherever you go in your pocket and install it in any vehicle. So that it will recognize me. What about the – going back to the GV70, it also has this cabin radar sensor that can uh, – do you remember this conversation? That can – detect the most minute um movement in the cabin to ensure that you don't leave anything in the back seat like a like a sleeping baby i think it's it's clear that if i am ever going to be murdered inside my car it will be by the stillest of assassins who can outwit the genesis radar so are you worried that these korean luxury cars are breeding essentially these super assassins i think that it's definitely contributing to it i mean if you if you if you take a world, if you take two things, the the Marvel television series yep. and and Korean Super Radar, 
and put them in a pod and shake them up. You're definitely breeding a, a world of assassins we can't even begin to comprehend the danger of. All right. Well, that's uh, probably the top car for me this year. What about you? What's what's next for you? What's next for me is the larger cousin of the GV70, which is creatively called the GV80. Oh. I think that the GV80 is much better than the GV70. I'm not sure if that's because I like the size more or if the styling of the Genesis crossover looks better on a larger canvas. I just think it, it, it's a fantastic, um, fantastic appearing car. Mm-hmm. It drives quite well. Power is great. The interior is phenomenal. Bar none, the best interior in its class. And it's priced a little bit below cars from BMW and Mercedes that aren't nearly um, giving you the same wow factor. So I, I think that's it's an exceptional vehicle. I think Genesis is – I mean it's funny because when Genesis came on the scene, I want to say three years ago now, maybe four, mm-hmm. a lot of the criticism was, oh, they're, they're only having sedans. You know, Everyone's buying crossovers and SUVs now. Um, when are we going to get those crossovers and, and, and SUVs from Genesis? Well, they're here, <laughs> and, and they're, they're worth pretty the, good. They're yeah. worth the wait. It's amazing. They did not waste their time. It's like the extra couple of years really paid off. So, uh, fantastic effort from Genesis, and a truly spectacular vehicle. Okay, now I'm going to give you. I'm going to let you double up because I want to know if the X7 is on your list anywhere. No, because it's not new for this year, so I, uh, I did not include it on my list. Because I remember you being quite the fan of the X7, the BMW X7, and I was curious how you feel about that compared to the GV80. Well, they're not the same class of vehicle whatsoever. Because I, the, a GV80 is, a, I would say, an X5 competitor. Yeah, okay, sure. So um, it's, 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 a, it's, it's, it's a smaller smaller footprint. Um, I want to continue this conversation by talking about um, some EVs. I really enjoyed my my time in the Porsche Taycan. The only weird thing about the Taycan, and I drove the 4S this year, which is unbelievably an unbelievably strong performer. It uh, costs just over a hundred thousand dollars, which is pretty pricey, but it looks really good. Um, I wasn't super enthusiastic about the interior, but as soon as you start driving this thing, it really like. It, it it's the real deal. I think this is exactly what um, EV enthusiasts are looking for. What did you not like about the interior specifically? Remember, you mentioned the the screen, um, just that screen dashboard that makes it look ridiculous when you turn the car off and there's just no style there. Yeah, I didn't like that. I didn't like the uh, the little like there's a weird shifter nub that you have to like deal with, um, and I could never see some of the buttons behind or the screens behind the steering wheel, which bugged me a little bit. Yeah. But on the other hand, this car really delivered better than it, it, uh, expectations in terms of the range. But it has a weird way of it had a weird way of calculating range. It would just tell you a very low number, um, and when you started driving that the car around, the number wouldn't change very much. So it was always like it was with, withholding information from you until. Until you drove it a lot. It definitely sounds nerve-wracking. Like I know. I, it was so strange. It was like, you only have 200, 230 uh, kilometers to get to wherever you need to go. And I'm like, okay. But 30 kilometers later, it was like, hmm. What's, like, what's a kilometer again? What's a kilometer? 220. I don't know. What's a kilometer again? Yeah, the car was constantly trying to remember what its measurements were. Uh, so I, my best EV experience this year, I guess, would probably be the Ford Mustang Mach-E. And I liked it because for an inexpensive electric vehicle it did pretty much everything i wanted it to it's got a decent amount of room inside it can be very fast 
it has an okay vehicle interface. The styling is not great. It doesn't really distinguish itself, but you know, it fits in fine with other crossovers at its price point. I think it's for for a first effort from Ford, really you know, you can't really talk about the um Older Focus EVs. Electric? Yeah, the Focus Electric was not a, a real electric vehicle. That was a compliance car. Yep. So this is really a great first effort um, that, that I enjoyed in terms of, you know. Will you be issuing an apology to all of the Ford Focus Electric uh, owners who are listening to the podcast All right 27 now? of them? Yeah. Yeah. No, uh, it's we have the that is all Ford Focus electric owners. <laughs> there, are, there, there are some other great EVs on the market. Yeah, uh, but I think the Mach E is maybe the best well-rounded for the price that you can get. I think I agree with that. I think um, it is extremely well-rounded. It is a decent price. It has excellent range. It performed pretty nicely. Um, my, I don't feel the same way about you as the as that infotainment system. I was not a fan of that. I think it's uh, fine. It's very like. It dominates the whole experience, and trying to use a, uh, uh, that touchscreen while driving, especially – I don't know what I was trying to do with it, but it was not – it I, it was very distracting. You're trying to load your DivX files on there. That's probably what you were trying to do. Yeah, I got to load all the – I got to check to make sure I got the right codec for each one of these these it's such videos. a hassle. Uh, um, let's continue this conversation, though. I really um, – I don't think I have any more EVs I want to talk about, though. Do you have any more EVs you want no, to talk about? No, I actually only have two more vehicles that I want to highlight for this Okay. Day. Okay. Um, I want to talk first about the Rolls-Royce Ghost and the Rolls-Royce Ghost Black Badge. Oh, yeah. For people who live at night. Is that what it, isn't that what the... the uh... Who have different lifestyle at night. Remember? Yeah. So uh, during the day, you're a normal human being. And at night, you are a sociopathic killer in your Mercedes... Or sorry, your Rolls-Royce. <laughs> yes, that's right. I love that. I want to pretend to be like that all the time. Pretend um, to be I, like that, sure. Yeah, I want to uh, talk about these cars because the black badge um, was just an interesting experiment to me. I didn't, expe- I didn't expect Rolls Royce to try to deliver a a more engaging version of its vehicle, a louder version of its vehicle, and somehow a little bit more exuberant version of its vehicle. But it managed to do all of those in very slight variations. So I was pretty impressed with that. Although, what do you expect for a car of that that cost, really? Uh, I my my of the two um, vehicles left that could potentially be my car of the year, the Kia Carnival is not my car of the year, but I loved it. This is a fun minivan in the sense that it brings you Korean luxury in the in a way that we haven't seen before. We, we've talked in the past about how in Korea and Japan there's this whole like luxury van lifestyle thing that never really happened here, or if it happened in North America, it happened in the seventies, and it was a lot sleazier. <laughs> <laughs> and there was a lot more heavy metal and murals being painted on the side of their vans. But um, in Korea and Japan, people are pretty serious about their vans in the sense that, you know, for if you were driving in a limousine, there's a high chance it's going to be a van. They call them MPVs, multi-purpose vehicles, rather than vans. And uh, the Carnival is super comfy inside. It's got these great Barca lounger Ottoman recliner seats in the middle row. And it looks pretty decent on the outside, too. I loved the soft drive. It was everything that I wanted in a minivan, and it, I'm I'm glad it exists. Like I've said earlier about some of the other vehicles here, like the LC500, I think the Kia Carnival is a really a very unique vehicle in its class, and um, minivans te- typically get the short shift because people don't really try to do anything new with them. So uh, kudos to Kia for doing this with the Carnival. 
Very true. Um, I don't know. I'm still like skeptical on it. I think it's a good van. I just don't think it's the best family van. I just think it's very cool that it. Uh, but that I don't you have a family, very, Sammy. But I remember what what you mentioned though. <laughs> it, like it, it, it just complements what I mean. It is a luxury oriented van, um, and and that's really di- something different than what we usually have in the market. I want to finish um, my list off with the Toyota GR86. I spent a good chunk of time in this car, and it is everything the old GT86 and the BRZ is, but all of the little gaps and details fixed. And I thought that's that's exactly what it needed to be, right? You don't want to change your, your vehicle so dramatically from one generation to the next. You want to fix what went wrong. Um, or what you couldn't do, or what the customers are are complaining about, and I think they really did. I just wish it kind of looked a little bit cooler. I don't think it looks all too special in any way or form. And the the two vehicles kind of look. The front end design needs to be. I don't know. Something needs to happen there. I don't know if it's as attractive as the old ones used to be. So uh, my final vehicle that I want to talk about is my vehicle of the year. And oh wow, um, yeah. So people who are have been listening to the podcast are not going to be surprised by this, and they probably have predicted what it is. But for me, it's the Hyundai Santa Cruz. Oh, the, yeah. Okay. The, the one uni- we just talked about. Right. Yeah. The, we just did an episode, I think, two episodes ago about it. The yeah. Anyway, it's a compact uni- unibody pickup. It drives better than any midsize truck or any full-size truck on the market. It has a short bed. It's still pretty useful. I was able to put a Christmas tree in the back that was five feet tall. Uh, it is great inside. I wish it wasn't as expensive as it is, especially in Canada where we only get the two top trims, but it's got turbo power. It's really quick and I just really enjoy driving it. I had the Santa Cruz the week before I drove the Bronco and all week while I was driving the Bronco, all I could think was I wish I was still in the Santa Cruz because it was so much more comfortable and pleasant to drive. So we haven't had a great compact truck in forever. I haven't driven the Maverick yet. Sammy's actually currently or about to drive the Maverick. So we're going to talk about it quite soon on an upcoming episode. But uh, I like this trend of small trucks that are actually small versus midsize trucks that are just full-size trucks in disguise. So mm-hmm. this is this is my vehicle of the year. I'm it, it's great too because it comes from Hyundai, uh, which has no history of building trucks in North America, and they were able to put together an astonishing first effort. Uh, no surprise really because the Tucson crossover it's based on is pretty good, but I I think it looks great too, and it's just a super compelling package all around. Agreed. I think uh, it's a pretty cool truck. I am driving the Maverick, and I'm trying. I'm I'm going to be I'm going to be spending a lot of time in it actually. And uh, I'm hoping to get a better understanding of how the Maverick fares in this same sort of class, because there's a lot of there's a lot of hype around the Maverick as well. There is, and a lot of that is price related. I mean, the Maverick undercuts the Santa Cruz by five or six grand at the base. Not mm-hmm. that you can actually buy a base Maverick anymore; they're all sold out. Um, but and yeah. powertrain wise, you can get like a hybrid in some cases too. Which well, is the hybrid, cool. the base model is a hybrid. It's oh right, front wheel drive only hybrid, and then the, you can get the if you want all wheel drive for the Maverick, you have to get the turbo uh, EcoBoost model. Whereas Santa Cruz went with a a naturally aspirated four front wheel drive for the base, and then a turbo four for the top two trims. So, dear listener, if you um, have your own ideas of what car of the year um, might be, you should get in touch with us. Um, easy way to do that is to go to our website, unnamedautomotivepodcast.com. And while you're, while you're there, you'll see all of our older episodes to reacquaint yourself with the vehicles that we've talked about um, this year. But you get to the website, you go to this button, it says contact, um, you fill out this form, and just like that, you've gotten in touch with us very easily. Um, 
Furthermore, you can reach out to us on social media. You can find um, Ben on Instagram. He's at Hunting Benjamin. That's right. Hunting Benjamin. And you can find me on Twitter. I'm at Sammy underscore ha, like you're laughing. And if you want to find past episodes, they're all there at unnamedautomotivepodcast.com. We've got buttons that will link you to pretty much every podcatcher that we're on. And there's a few other ones that were that uh, maybe don't have buttons there. But you can find us pretty much everywhere. Amazon Podcasts. You can find us on Spotify. You can find us on Google Apple, everything, everywhere you would normally listen to a podcast, we are probably there. I also want to mention, we've had some people reach out and ask us, hey, how can we rate your podcast? How can we leave a comment? How can we help spread the word? And Spotify just recently, I believe this week, added ratings to their podcast. I know before you weren't able to do that. So if you are listening to us on Spotify, you can now do that. And we would appreciate it if you did, because it helps kind of push us up to the top and gets more people listening to us, which we always appreciate. Um, I also want to say when we're talking about appreciation, thanks again for spending another year with us at Unnamed Automotive Podcast. This is our fifth year now, I believe. And we're over. Really? Yeah. And over 250 episodes. So uh, we we wouldn't do this if it wasn't for you guys and 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 girls and um, everyone who who's listening to us. If there's no audience, there's no point in doing this. And we have a great audience, and you guys come back every week. And I keep saying, guys, you people keep coming back to us every week, and uh, we don't take that for granted. And we try to do a great job for you every week because of that. So thank you very much. And I know Sammy also, he has a difficulty expressing gratitude, but I know inside his heart of hearts, he is also grateful for all the, all the downloads, all the questions, um, all the time that you spend with us at each and every year. Absolutely. Um, additionally, I need to give a thank you to our Ko-Fi contributors or supporters. Um, additionally, if you go to ko-fi.com, ko-fi.com slash unnamed automotive podcast, you can uh, give us a little tip. It just helps us uh, keep things uh, well-oiled over here on our end. Um, isn't that right, Ben? Yeah, and we've had a bunch of very generous listeners do that over the past year. So thank you again for that. And uh, we are going to be taking a break because we are, you know, the holidays and things are kind of crazy where we're living right now. So we're actually not sure how things are going to go for the next week or so. But we will be back in the new year with a new episode. That's right. And I think we're, we've got some guests lined up, too, which is exciting, too. Yeah, so I, we do. You won't want to miss it. All right. So thank you, everyone. Take care. Bye.